Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, goodbye to time and a half. Plus, UMass Boston's interim chancellor takes the reins and expanding a local program to put the brakes on dangerous speeds. It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, South Africa's signature wine is made for American burgers and trend-topping charcoal foods. So some people believe that drinking or eating activated charcoal has a detoxifying effect. In Japan, there was like a Burger King mm -hmm. did a black cheeseburger. It yeah. was actually pretty cool looking. Our food and wine gurus are here with the latest summer eats and drinks. But first, joining me from the studio, Jennifer Smith, news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. Hello again, Jennifer. Hi, Callie. Gen Dumchus, Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com. Welcome back, Gen. Hey, how are you? <laughs> and Mike Dean, State House reporter for WGBH News. Hi, Mike. Hey, Kelly. I'm starting with you again. The Massachusetts about to lose time and a half, the time-honored time and a half on Sundays and holidays. Can that be true? Well, this was all part of the grand bargain uh, that myself and, and uh, Mike covered up at the State House. And uh, yes, what I didn't know when I started writing the story was that Massachusetts is one of two states that had time and a half. Uh, Rhode Island is the other one. And this was part of a, a previous grand bargain or a previous piece of legislation that allowed uh, retailers to open on, on Sundays. And what this does is basically what this, the, the latest grand bargain does is uh, it phases out time and a half as the $15 minimum wage is raised. And uh, this is something that the retailers wanted. They said, listen, we don't, we don't want to be paying $22.50 an hour on Sundays and holidays. If you're going to raise the minimum wage, then you have to phase out time and a half. Um, and obviously, the unions are very upset about this. People who represent low-wage workers are very upset because for them, they say, like, that, that's a pretty big moneymaker. And the thing to caveat this is this mainly affects the retail sector. If you, if you work for a company... Time and a half will still be, uh, I guess, market-based is the way the, the some folks mm -hmm. say. Um, if the if the company uh, wants to provide that, they can, but they were not required to uh, before or after this law. So when you say retail, I think clothing, but that's not what you mean. You mean like grocery store? What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. just, just an mm -hmm. overall retail sector, not mm -hmm. just clothing. Mm -hmm. um, just uh, uh, stores that are open on, on Sundays and, and uh, you know, again, low-wage low workers mm -hmm. or folks that don't necessarily make that much money. And again, it's a, it's a fairly controversial thing. I did a, a completely separate post on the, the grand bargain that basically broke out. Like, this is this is time and a half is being done away with. And it got a lot of uh, eyeballs. Uh, a lot of people very interested in this because it, it does affect a lot of people. Uh, the retail sector um, has, uh, how, how many, uh, Mike, uh, over, you know, tens of thousands of people, if not, you know, uh, 100,000 people um, that this could affect. 
Yeah, I mean, this is every, you know, everyone in a shopping mall, uh, big box stores, really everything that we, we kind of interact with throughout the day. Um, you don't really think about how many retail workers there actually are. Um, and this was really the sticking point in that grand bargain that we keep mentioning. That was, you know, the um, the legislative effort that kind of put the kibosh on those three uh, ballot questions. Um, the retailers were the retail business owners were the ones who were really going after the uh, lowering of the sales tax. And it was kind of a, a mechanism to get what they actually wanted, which was to end the time and a half or to beat back the minimum wage or really just be friendlier to retailers. They got their um, sales tax holiday out of this bargain as well um, to boost the retailers. And, you know, that's those are the horses that they traded in Sunday time and a half, especially like you said, like Gin said, when you're looking at twenty two fifty an hour, uh, retailers said, well, we're just not going to open on Sundays if we have to pay this much. And, you know, smaller places, mom and pops uh, can't really afford that kind of a thing. Um, you know, and then you get to talks about profits and, and, yeah, and who's, right. who's making the money and everything. Um, but, yeah, you know, when you have a grand bargain, you, you take some and you give some. And that's uh, one of the big bargaining chips that was on the table for yeah. that. I'm so, always fascinated mm-hmm. just by trying to kind of parse out that discussion from store owners and retail owners uh, where they're basically saying, if you have this specific needed pay hike, we're not going to be able to open on these days. Because you see a very similar conversation around the idea of raising the minimum wage entirely mm-hmm. as they say, well, if you do that, then we're just going to hire more part-timers. We're going to um, to cut down on resources in that way as well. So it's always always a little bit interesting to try and see how much of it is just them like bluffing and holding out as long as they can, as much as saying like, look, if it's more than twenty dollars an hour, now we've reached something untenable, as opposed to something that we were just a little bit uncomfortable with. Well, a couple things just to follow up what you said. There are other places in the country where they've been at fifteen dollars an hour, and the apocalypse did not happen either for the folks who were earning it or the, of course, it wouldn't happen for them, uh, but for the retailers, it it sort of settled down. Yeah, California is yeah. coming in at twenty twenty two, I think, mm-hmm. uh, with the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Yeah, but I mean, there have been there have been pockets around the country. Too that have um, that have put more like specifically local regional fifteen dollar minimum wage uh, um, just kind of in into operation and you haven't yeah you haven't seen the sky fall or anything um, I think there's always a certain amount of trepidation when it's you know statewide or federally mandated where there suddenly feels like there's a lot less wiggle room but mm-hmm. yeah I mean. If the reason that you're enacting a $15 minimum wage is because there's a real quality of life issue and, and an affordability issue, then hopefully that's an, an adequate way to address that problem. Does it, again, eventually kind of even out? I mean, you are going to there's going to be some big law is a big gap between 15 and $22 an hour. I get that. But does it eventually sort of even out a little bit for the worker? Well, this is this is over the course of five years. Mm-hmm. So you you could argue if you're if you're one of the folks who was pushing for the fifteen dollar minimum wage, by the time we get to a fifteen dollar minimum wage, it's Disney not going to yes. be what it was That's worth right. today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think twenty twenty three is when that when the, the we actually hit the fifteen dollars uh, uh, an hour. Um, and with with time and a half, um, I think what the retailers were saying, like it's very it's, it's going to become market based. So I, I worked Memorial Day and I and I got time and a half. My company was not required to to provide that like retailers, but they did it as an incentive um, uh, for, for me to work. Mm-hmm. And um, the retailers are, are saying like, well, th- that's that's how it should be. It should be market based. They were they were required to do so as part of blue laws, the, right. the oh, archaic blue. laws. Yeah. Um, so um, I think it's one of those things that's going to have to be watched. 
and it's something that, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the totals, are people losing out, or are they going to be losing out on wages where they could they could have been making more money? And I think that's just one of those things where the Department of Revenue is going to have to track. And I just will say this, and this is just you know, I realize just something in my own little head, which is that I assumed that if they're paying time and a half on Sunday, that that to your point about the incentive, you often got your good workers to work on some of these off days because mm. they knew that it was beneficial to them in a, in a significant bottom line way. So, you know, maybe you open up on Sunday and you get just get who you get if you did if you didn't have that as an incentive, but when you had time and a half, you could then the, actually the employer can be somewhat choosy about who works on Sunday yeah, and have more offers yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Especially mm-hmm. as it's become a big shopping day. You know, when we think it's really yeah. only been a generation and a half since retailers have been allowed <laughs> right. to be open in Massachusetts. And, you know, I think a lot of people have that Sunday shopping routine, either, you know, groceries or, or uh, like a, a you know, soft lines kind of a retailer. Yeah. Well, interesting. All right, Jennifer, I'm interested in the expansion of the Slow Streets project. I know people, this is Boston's neighborhood, Slow Streets, yeah. which is all about traffic calming. And some people made fun of this. <laughs> like, really, we're going to slow down these this bad uh, racing through the streets in some yeah. neighborhoods, but apparently this pilot programs work very well. Yeah, it's it's working out pretty well. So two years ago, just for context, um, there were two pilot areas that that got got rolled out. Uh, one of them was in the Talbot Norfolk Triangle area of Dorchester, and. Um, the, the premise of this is it was in line with the same time the city was generally saying we need to just lower the speed limit in general. People in Boston are crazy drivers and they should drive more slowly. Um, and But the Slow Streets Initiative specifically is taking these little pocket neighborhoods, basically, maybe like 12 blocks or so, and saying we know that there are some areas where you've got reliably really uh, bad speeding problems, unsafe intersections, people are getting hit all the time. Um, they're just, it's it's a reckless situation. Um, let's see if we can kind of, you know, give you bespoke traffic calming mm-hmm. mitigation efforts. And so they rolled out the first two, two years ago. And then last fall, when we talked about it, they had rolled out the first actual round of open applications. Um, And it was so popular, you had something like 47 uh, little communities applied, and they can only pick five of those. Mm. Um, And so the first rounds of those are actually completed now or or are are getting into the meeting process. And so I had a chance to speak with um, the head of the West of Washington Coalition, who is uh, which is an area that actually abuts the, the Talbot Norfolk Triangle. So they were kind of looking at their neighbors saying, look at how well this worked. They've literally wrapped this whole thing up. Um, they got raised sidewalks. They got better signage. Um, everyone in the area is really happy about it. They fixed all the parking. Um, so they're right now in this second series of public meetings. The new applications are about to open up. Um, and it's basically a really interesting way for smaller community groups who are intimately familiar with the way that people drive on their streets. Like, yes. we all know how people yeah. drive on the streets we live on. Yeah. Um, to have a chance to go to the city in an organized way and say, I've got six blocks for you. 
what can we do about this? Mm-hmm. And the city can come back to them and say, we have this exact toolkit to work with. So it's it's kind of going really well right now. Everyone's pretty pleased about it. And the next round of applications is due in in August. That's great. Yeah. Well, I you know, as I said, this everybody was kind of skeptical about it. Even the name people made fun of. But yeah. the neighborhood slow streets. Yeah, yeah. Know, but, but it's working very well. Yeah. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter. You just heard her. Gen Dupchus of MassLive.com and Mike Dean of WGBH News. And we're discussing the local stories you may have missed from this week's news. Well, Mike, it would be hard to miss the Roe versus Wade archaic abortion law situation here mm. in Massachusetts. With the looming new naming of a Supreme Court justice, which everybody assumes that President Trump will pick one who um, has been vetted to vote down Roe versus Wade. A lot of analysts have said what's going to happen is all the states then will sort of ramp up what they can do uh, in that direction. So by the time it actually gets to the Supreme Court, it'll be right. done. More, more and more restrictions yeah. Will, yeah. will build upon each other. Yeah. Well, this is a story that was uh, you could have considered it under the radar until Justice <laughs> Kennedy stepped down. I'm talking about, you know, what would happen here in Massachusetts Um I wrote this story oh God, like a year and a half ago uh, about these archaic laws, uh, and it didn't get much traction. Uh, the The situation here is that we have um, these ancient laws, some dating as far back as 1845, that do ban abortion in Massachusetts. They are not functioning laws. They are not enforced. Um, they there's an argument that they are not enforceable. Uh, they're just even kind of them. moot. Yeah, yeah. The, the, but, but the thing is, they're still there. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a highly symbolic issue to expunge these old laws from the books. Uh, pro-choice activists uh, really in the legislature and um, third-party groups definitely want this to happen. You know, NARAL pro-choice and Planned Parenthood have been pushing for this for a, a while. Um, the Senate passed it last year. Uh, it's actually called the Nasty Women Act, which is a very, you know, resistance tinged mm-hmm. name for it. Um, it's an acronym for something regarding archaic, archaic laws. <laughs> uh, okay. there, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch. There are other efforts, uh, actually to get rid of a lot of these old laws, uh, off of the books. This is just specifically the abortion ones, but there's things about contraceptive. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's technically, no, technically illegal, mm-hmm. so to speak, to sell contraceptives to anyone but a married couple. You know, under certain circumstances, because of some turn of the century law that the legislature never took off the books. They'll add new laws that are, you know, the current ones, of course. Um, but they won't remove the old ones. So in Massachusetts, we uh, the, the, our, our high court has found that there is a constitutional right um, to abortion services. So if Roe versus Wade were to be overturned, very little would change in Massachusetts um, as far as abortion access is concerned. What people are uh, worried about beyond the symbolic nature of having these laws in the books, they're worried about there might be some kind of uh, you know conservative prosecutor a pro-life prosecutor. We don't have that many of those in Massachusetts, but someone who might dredge up these old laws and use it uh, against a provider or a patient or, or whatever. Um, that's a long shot. But uh, if you talk to these activists and you know pro-choice lawmakers, they're saying, we don't even want to take that risk. We don't want any chance at all. And they really want lawmakers to take an affirmative vote uh, right in this current national climate, where Roe versus Wade really is on the table nationally, take an affirmative vote in Massachusetts to say, you know, once and for all, yes, uh, abortion is a, a right that you know people in Massachusetts will have. 
we don't know if the legislature is going to do that or not. Oh, so uh, that was my question. Do <laughs> so you think there is going to is it a problem to get rid of it? Or, I mean, is there any resistance to getting rid of it? Um, there, it, it's I don't wouldn't really call it resistance so much as inertia uh, oh, resistance. It's oh. it's like anything in the state yeah. house. Uh, the Senate passed it a year and a half ago, and the House is now just getting around to you know the House Speaker is like taking it. a look at it. He uh, is meeting with Narel um, this week about looking at this bill, uh, it's one of those things where if the membership pushes DeLeo in a certain way and he, he will probably sign off on it. He's, he's, you know, pro-choice. I don't think he has, he has any personal problem with it whatsoever. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, dotting the I's and getting that to the floor to, to make it law. Um, hmm. whether or not, you know, and the, and the governor Baker as well, uh, mm-hmm. a pro-choice Republican will probably not have a problem signing it if they were to pass it. Yeah, I'm okay. always struck by like the issue of the urgency because I mean it's not like they're enforcing it. Um, it's it's almost saying like it's more important to make again that political stance that this is a thing that we value, not just a thing that we're gonna kind of ignore if it if well, it exists still. <laughs> I, I, I'll just point out that it's not been that long ago since Dr. Kenneth Eadlin right here in Boston was you know, put up on charges for performing what they considered was an illegal abortion, and he right. his case. I mean, he first was convicted, and then the the Massachusetts Supreme uh, Judicial Court overturned that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was not in the 1800s. Right, yeah. right. So, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, I, I think a lot of people nationally are looking at other states who will yeah. probably pass more and more restrictive laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of you know gutting Roe versus Wade completely, it'll be a death by a thousand cuts. You hear you know yes. that term used right. a lot. And uh, in Massachusetts, it's not going to happen, but they want to be very, very clear that it won't happen here. Um, okay, so let's move on. It's a couple of uh, political folks I wanted to just ask you about. So, again, you have this piece about Brian Herr, who ran with Governor Charlie Baker, but has now absented himself from the GOP party, saying, it's not my party, I got to step away. But you're you're asking the question is, are others, well, what does that mean in terms of uh, his connection with Charlie Baker? What kind of political situation is that then? And this, yeah, and and, and uh, he was also the second uh, candidate who ran against uh, Ed Markey. Uh, the first one was Gabe uh, Gabe Gomez. Mm-hmm. He left the party too. Mm-hmm. Um, they ran on different in different years, obviously. But um, uh, this is another another uh, Republican who ran statewide in Massachusetts, who's who's bailed on the party, uh, given given what's happening with President Trump and President Trump's uh, takeover of the of the National Party, at least. And that puts uh, Governor Charlie Baker in a, in a bit of a bind. Uh, it was actually uh, Dean uh, who asked uh, the governor about basically, you know, we, you got another person leaving the party. What, what, what's, uh, what, what's your stance? And, and Baker very much, uh, you know, he, he retreats to saying this is his brand of republicanism, mm-hmm. the, the Baker fiscal mm-hmm. discipline, um, man- managing government, um, and and uh, very much uh, saying like well you know uh, I I'm very much in the the mode of, mold of uh, Bill Weld uh, the thing the thing that I I usually point out is well Bill Weld is no longer a Republican Ooh, either that's true. he's yeah. he's a member he didn't like it when you pointed that out. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well it's but it, it's uh, you know uh, I I think I think what I've said before is uh, Charlie Baker is a Bill Weld Republican at a time when Bill Weld is not a Republican anymore right. yeah. um, so so and and it's one of those things where where what what is the appetite for uh, Baker uh, Republicanism, and mm-hmm. I think we're going to see that uh, this fall. Um, it's one of those things where where uh, Baker has a he has a case to make that the the, the government's been running um, uh, a little bit better since he's been uh, in office. But the question is, what 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 do the voters want? Uh, both both Republicans and Democrats. It seems like Democrats are actually uh, are giving Baker higher approval ratings mm-hmm. in some cases than than Republicans, and he has a 
Baker has a Republican opponent, Scott Lively, who's very much a pro-Trump Republican um, and uh, uh, anti-gay pastor out of Springfield uh, who's been uh, who's been trying to pressure Charlie Baker on the on the cultural stuff. So he'll put the pressure on him. Absolutely. And I, I think that's something to watch. I mean, he got uh, almost 30 percent at, at the state GOP convention in Worcester uh, a couple of months ago. Yes, um, and we're going to we're going to see how much he gets in the in the primary vote. I think I think we all expect we all expect uh, Baker to to uh, uh, to clear the primary. The question becomes when a candidate is known to clear or will is expected to clear the primary by how much. And then, and then you turn to the general and, and see how amped up are Democrats, how much do they want a uh, single party, uh, because that's, that's Baker's other argument. is he's a Republican governor overseeing a, a Democratic legislature that has to be pushed and prodded, um, you know, that creative friction uh, that, that he argues is so vital. Um, you know, are, are voters going to want that? And, and are they going to distinguish between the national Trump Republican brand um, and the local Massachusetts uh, Bill Weld, uh, uh, Bill Weld's former brand, uh, yeah. and, and Baker's current brand? Well, I, I think it also has to be a part of the conversation is that when he has some opportunities, he makes a kind of broad statement about I'm not a Trump guy, for example. Um, as we reported here at WGBH, he was going to send the the uh, troops to the border as requested by the president, you know, to protect the, the border. And then when this situation came up with uh, separating children from their families, the migrant children, he said, uh, no, I'm not, as a protest to that. So yeah. it's kind of interesting. Yeah, he <laughs> almost takes, like, um, a response by kind of opting out approach almost, you know, he blanked his ballot. Um, so yeah. he didn't yes. vote like, you know, for instance, his opposition to Trump was not so extreme that he would vote for a Democrat. You know, he's not openly saying, you know, we're going to go petition the Trump government to not do this thing, but we're going to definitely not assist in it. Um, so I, I find that pretty interesting as well, especially in the context of Lively. Um, uh, just I, I always find the question of not necessarily how big the margin is, but what movement and what pressure um, an outside candidate can exert on the kind of more moderate uh, representative mm. of the party um, if he sees that some cultural arguments are sticking in ways that he might not expect, whether or not there's actually any movement there is always something that's interesting to watch, not because it might change his electability, but whether it changes um, the language at all. I, I think that's a really important point to make because we've seen that happen in other races. Uh, Mike, I just want to just, in this political uh, conversation, I just want to move over to, you pointed out that uh, State Representative uh, Jeffrey Sanchez, who's become quite powerful as the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, has an opponent that we don't hear much about. And lots of folks are thinking she has a snowball's chance, as we say. But there is that race that we're all looking at in New York where everybody said, um, right. that, that woman had no chance against mm -hmm. uh, a long-term Democratic congressman, and look what happened. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's a little less. My, my perspective on this race is definitely from inside the state house, mm -hmm. uh, and less from the neighborhood. Um, and that kind of could show you where an upset could could take place mm -hmm. because it's the neighborhood that votes, not the state house that votes. Mm -hmm. um, Jeffrey Sanchez is the uh, chairman of Ways and Means. He's perhaps the you know second or third highest ranking um, figure in the House, depending on you know, how you count these these things. Mm -hmm. He's one of uh, Speaker DeLeo's absolute top lieutenants. He's one of the most powerful guys in the building. Uh, he's only had that job for, you know, about a year now. He's still trying to, you know, take the reins. And um, he's, a, he's a very progressive guy from Jamaica Plain, uh, Puerto Rican-American. 
And, uh, you know, his, pro- his progressive credentials have always shown through in his lawmaking. Mm-hmm. Now he's a, he's a lot more on the inside. And when you're the budget chair, which is what Ways and Means is, it's a lot of uh, you, know, you say yes, but you say no a lot more to your colleagues and certain things. And when you manage the money, uh, you can't be quite as openly progressive with where that money goes as you would like to be if you were just a rank-and-file member asking to pay for things. Um, That sets up a situation where there could be backlash in the neighborhood uh, if he's not out there as much as his you know base mm-hmm. in the neighborhood wants him to be uh, again this is his um, Jamaica Plain Mission Hill I think he also has mm-hmm. uh, yes. and I'll, I think he got a sliver of Brookline because mm-hmm. I used, I used to cover that race <laughs> that that district um, it just you know to to point it towards what happened in New York you had a member of leadership who seemingly to, to generalize what happened kind of lost his way at home um, somewhat due to the duties of leadership. It's a little different in the state house. I think Sanchez is uh, not get le- letting his eye off the ball at home as much, and also the uh, diversity factor here uh, is very different. Sanchez, again, he's a he's a Puerto Rican American. Right. Um, he's the highest ranking um, person of color in state mm. government right. right now. Um, actually, probably for the last couple of years, he's he's you know he's definitely um, he wears that mantle. Uh, on a statewide way. His so, opponent is Jacob, a Jamaica Plain resident, Nika L. Ugardo, and she appears to be a black woman. I say appears because you can't always tell by looking. Yeah, yeah she's a yeah. former state yeah. house aide, I believe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys are up on the race right. more than, than I do. I apologize for not having the, the facts uh, at, Senior at hand. Senior policy advisor to state senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. She, yes, I remember mm-hmm. her from mm-hmm. Chang-Diaz's mm-hmm. office. So also, you know, someone from... Uh, Beacon Hill, who, who knows the building, and, and that always helps when you run for state representative. Whether or not uh, Sanchez actually um, is, is hurt at all in this primary race mm-hmm. remains to be seen. It mm-hmm. would be a huge upset uh, yeah, in, the, huge. in the building, yeah. but um, I, I don't think that the dynamics are as cookie cutter as you're looking at with um, you know the New York race or even with um, Ayanna Presley and, and Capuano. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are reporters Jennifer Smith, Gen Doomshus, and Mike Dean. We're discussing local stories you may have missed from this week's news. Um, the UMass Boston interim chancellor is taking over, Jennifer. Nobody really knows much about her. Shed a little light about what you see happening as she takes the reins. Sure. So um, obviously, as Gin and I have covered for for quite some time now, there has been uh, a decent amount of chaos among the uh, UMass slash UMass Boston uh, relationship, mm-hmm. um, uh, specifically deriving from the sale of uh, Mount Ida to UMass Amherst. On the UMass Boston side, uh, there had been a chancellorship search that was completely derailed uh, among faculty pushback, basically rooted in trust issues between the faculty of UMass Boston and uh, UMass President Marty Meehan. So the search was derailed when some members of the faculty put out a pretty scathing letter calling all three of these chancellor candidates uh, unqualified on their face. And of course, there's a lot of discussion about whether that's a fair assessment. But for whatever reason, over the course of that weekend following the letter, all three of them withdrew. And Marty Meehan called off the chancellorship search and in the meantime appointed Catherine Newman, who is 65. She's a California native, uh, went to UC San Diego initially and then later to UC Berkeley, where she taught as a law professor and then made her way after that through kind of a bunch of private colleges, ultimately landing back here in mm. Massachusetts um, at UMass Amherst as, as we bring it around full circle. Um, and so she was a provost there. 
for uh, three years, and she caused a little bit of chaos because she tried to roll out some pretty sweeping, ambitious changes a little bit too fast. So there was pushback from the faculty at UMass Amherst. She moved to the UMass Systems Office for the last six months, and now she's going to be mm. coming into UMass Boston uh, in the midst of, again, this moment of tension between the faculty and the president's office that appointed her. The good thing going into it for for her sake is that the faculty seems pretty tired of of all of all of this uh, all of this chaos and basically are taking the approach. We've all been out for the summer. Let's come back, see if we can work with her. We hope the chancellorship search opens up again on a more permanent basis. But let's get to know her, get her settled, um, and and hopefully she'll be a good kind of stopgap. Hmm. So when I talk to her. One thing that she really emphasizes, she spent her entire career talking about the exact kinds of mobility, social mobility, economic mobility through education that UMass Boston should ostensibly be providing, um, talking especially with it's a majority minority school. It's in the middle of this urban uh, area. It's on Columbia Point, kind of right up at the top of Dorchester. And so her approach is, look, I benefited from a really good state university system in California, um, worked my way through that. So I identify with a lot of the students there. But at the same time, she doesn't really want to be sleeping on the job going in. Mm -hmm. She wants to start kind of an ambitious look at the budgeting process. She oh. wants it to be mm -hmm. uh, involved and participatory. But again, that's what caused the issue at Amherst with the faculty, as they said. There's kind of you're trying to do too much too soon. So it's it's really kind of an open question how the UMass Boston faculty will respond if an interim chancellor, again, appointed by a president they don't fully trust, decides to try and do something ambitious a little bit too quickly. Well, if I may say, what budget do they have left? They have sliced, they have forced people off the payroll, they yeah, have laid off. Pretty extreme austerity I measures, mean, yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, if there's something she can do in organizing what is left mm. in an interesting way, I don't think you'll have any faculty members fighting that. But my God, they've cut the legs out of some really significant programs over there. It's, this is not a small thing that has happened. They're in a in a position where they have to claw back on so many levels. And to her point, for the population that she serves, and it's and it should be happening. And those students, you know, are getting left in the lurch, if I may say, yeah, in this be, moment. It'll you be know. interesting, too, to see um, what comes of the amendments that uh, Nick Collins put forward in the in the budget, specifically like protecting some of these some of these programs, saying these centers have to be funded fully in the same way that they were in prior years. Um, they tried to allocate some specific amounts of money um, to the university, but there was a question over what was structural debt, what was an actual budget deficit. So right. they basically just put in language saying, like, you can't cut anything without making a really good case for it. Well, thank so goodness. You know. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to move on to something that has not been passed, but is still there, and is is, and I don't understand, you know, why we're not getting attention about it. This is the uh, hands-free bill mm. that keeps languishing we you know people may think well didn't we do something about that mike you know didn't right. we pass something the senate so what, yeah <laughs> yeah so many things and, the, and yet it's, it's just half past. and it's just hanging there and i just want to say even before you uh, weigh in on this that um I've been in touch with Emily Stein, who's the president of Safe Roads Alliance, and there is a rally or a gathering on July 11th, that's uh, Wednesday of uh, this week coming up, 
to really put some pressure, hopefully, on you know passing this hands-free bill. Yeah, this is the time of year to to do it. Um, you know, Beacon Hill does a lot on the deadline, and we are at the deadline that you know August first, July thirty-first deadline to where they kind of turn into pumpkins, like, you know, lawmaker pumpkins, and go back to their district for re-election time. Um, they don't have a lot of time to, to get that done. Um, this is one of those issues that the Senate passed uh, quite a while ago. I don't know, probably last year sometime. Um, you're noticing a trend here. It's the same yeah. as the abortion yeah. Yeah. bill. Yeah. Uh, the, the archaic, the archaic abortion, abortion, abortion Yeah, the archaic the expungement bill. Yeah. Um, the Senate, a, a more progressive body where, you know, there's only 40 members and it's easy to kind of bring a floor vote and, and just pass it. The House far more deliberative and, and slower. And that's why things happen in July. Um, this is a hands-free bill. It would be, you know, very similar. I think people are probably familiar with it from other states. Um, you know, you just can't have your hand, your phone in your hand New, New York <laughs> when, has when it, you're driving. Yeah. California yeah. Too. New York, California. Um, it's been on the books for New York for quite some time, I think. So most drivers, I think, are, are, are familiar with it. Uh, you know, use your hands-free device. Um, it's being, you know, it's been held up for, you know, the reasons I said previously about, you know, the House's uh, process and kind of deadline crunch. There is another issue, however, um, uh, about the racial implications yep. of, of a bill I, like this. Yeah, let's talk about that because uh, State Senator Byron Rushing raised mm-hmm. this. Yes. Yeah, 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 he's um, he, uh, he's a leader in the House. He, he's uh, actually probably next to Sanchez, the second highest mm-hmm. ranking um, person of color in the, in the legislature. Uh, and he uses that influence on, on things like this, where it can, looks like it's a great idea. Polling shows that it's very popular with people. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard of a, a vote. But he is concerned that, um, you know, cell phone use could now become something that, you know, the police could use to to harass uh, drivers of color or, or in communities of color in, in a different way. Yeah, mm-hmm. to, to, mm-hmm. to um, it, I, I don't know how to say it other than to, to give another tool to mm-hmm. potential profiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult to say that, you know, law enforcement would or wouldn't, you know, use that tool. I think um, in a lot of ways, you know, police fought against, um, you know, body cameras. Yeah, a, a yeah, lot, a lot yeah. of that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't really get their perspective across and do, do it justice. But um, it, it's a concern. It's an issue that I think that a lot of you know, the, the white lawmakers mm. didn't think about right. and that, you know, it's part of Rushing's job to say, hey, God, you know, this is a concern. This could be a ramification, unintended consequence of this law. Let's take a look at it. He wants to get more language about um, uh, into the bill uh, uh, about how, you know, those how stops are made yes. and mm-hmm. how it's made. Um, the Senate provision, I believe, has some um data capture to it where so we can see how stops are changing and, and if this is being used in communities of color differently from the rest of the state and things like that uh, to then build off that data. Um, so it remains to be seen mm-hmm. if there, a compromise could be reached. And, and this is something the governor actually came came around to. Uh, Baker Baker has said he, he was skeptical about uh, and then he saw the data about increasing crashes and everything and he came he came around and said, you know what, we, we should do this. Mm. Well, we're going to leave it there, and that's just a, another way of saying that it's not slow at the state house <laughs> it looks during it, the summer. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> right it's, now it's, it's slow for the, the previous year and a half. Yeah, so. okay. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Jennifer Smith is news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. Gan Doomchus is Boston-based reporter for MassLive.com, and Mike Dean, state house reporter for WGBH News. Coming up, charcoal for your grill and your food. And wines in a can are a cooler staple, plus old and new summer favorites for the barbecue and picnic season. Yankee Magazine's Amy Traverso and Boston Wine School's Jonathan Alsop are here to talk food and wine. That's next 
This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's grilling season, but there is a different kind of charcoal lighting up the trendy food scene. And Mexican-style roasted corn is all the rage. Plus, pink wine from Red Wine Country and recommendations of old favorites and new wines to drink all barbecue season. Our food and wine connoisseurs are here. Joining me are Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. And also with me, Amy Traverso, senior food editor at Yankee Magazine and co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee. Hi, Amy. Hi there. I'm so glad to have both of you. Let's jump right in, Amy. Yeah. Um, charcoal and ash, big theme. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay, so charcoal and ash, and really a lot of black ingredients are big right now. And for that, I mostly blame Instagram because, you know, everybody <laughs> wants people to be posting photos of their food at their restaurant, and high-contrast foods photograph beautifully mm. on Instagram. So... For example, and okay, and so there's two elements. There's the Instagram, there's the visual piece, and it is beautiful. I mean, seeing these sort of black, like I think in in Japan there was like a Burger King Mm -hmm. did a black cheeseburger. It was actually pretty cool looking. Um, So there's the health side. So some people believe that drinking or eating activated charcoal has a detoxifying effect. I find the whole idea of toxins and detoxifying so vague as mm-hmm. to be meaningless. But And let me pause right there yeah. and say that the ch- activated charcoal is different from the charcoal you're putting in your grill, yes. just to be clear. This is sort of food-grade <laughs> charcoal. Yes. Okay. So there's yeah. charcoal, and then there's ash, which is created by burning mm-hmm. uh, f- food. Like um, uh, You'll see it often if you, have, if, you, if you like goat cheese. You'll see that a lot of goat cheeses mm, are made with a right. layer of ash, yeah. and it actually serves to neutralize the more barnyard flavors of goat cheese and give it a smoother, creamier flavor. So we do use, we've long used ash in foods. It, it can add that nice, like, charred flavor. So some interesting examples of where I'm seeing it at Cultivar. They're doing, like, a tuna tataki um, with not only charred radish, which, which is kind of interesting, but also they're serving it over black rice. Oh. So that's, like, the Instagram mm. one-two punch. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the color. <laughs> and it's got avocado. It's got all these colors. And then the... Um, Uni does a summer melon salad with burnt juniper, which actually sounds really delicious to me. And even by, you know, by Chloe, that's sort of vegan. It's like an yeah. upscale fast food chain. They do an activated charcoal juice tonic with lemon and honey and rainbow tears. It doesn't and, look tasty. Yeah. I have <laughs> to say it tears. doesn't look tasty. Is it I, tasty, Amy? It, you know, it, it doesn't really have a, a strong flavor. Okay. And um, yeah, so, you know, I think it's visually fun and probably nutritionally neutral. Um, I'm sure 
whatever. Some people might disagree, but it's fine. So enjoy it's it. It's fun. If you're, if you're yeah, take a picture it. and put so, it on your. Screen. So obviously, if you're eating the ash around the cheese, it's okay for you. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's totally edible. A lot okay. of times, yeah. it's made by burning hay okay. or other vegetables. Mm. Sometimes they'll like do leeks or alliums for the flavor. Um, yeah, it's it's good and yeah. it's it really makes the cheese yummy. Yeah, there's a French cheese called Morbier. It's got this layer of ash in the middle of the cheese, and that was used as an ancient timing mechanism. Mm. They would cook it, they would let it cool down, they would throw the cinders into the air and then let them settle and then build the top of the cheese. So it was a way of telling time before we had accurate Mm. time. I didn't know that. Um, Well, let me just tell you how far behind I am on the food trends. (laughs) Uh, Grilling romaine lettuce to me was hip and happening, so obviously (laughs) I'm out of the loop. (laughs) So now I'm going to get a little hipper and happening. All right, Jonathan, over to you. What are you opening up there? So um, (laughs) one one of the things that we love in the wine world is either discovering or rediscovering um, new grapes. Mm. Um, one of the things that uh, New World wine lovers do, you know, we're obsessed with the grape name. We talk about Sauvignon Blanc, we talk about Chardonnay, we talk about Merlot. Um, the good news is that this opens the door for a lot of other wine grapes, especially from, especially from Italy, especially from France, you know, grapes that were never known by the grape name, but were always known by the place. Mm. And so now, thanks to us thinking about wine in terms of grape names, this has brought some of these grapes to the fore. So I brought a white and a red, and this first white is from Piedmont, um, north uh, mm. western Italy. This is from southern Piedmont, closer mm. to the Mediterranean, and it's a wine called Gavi. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the town that it comes from. My family's from there. Uh, wow. Fantastic. Yep. Wow. Um, and Have you the, had this before? No. Okay. And the mm. grape is called uh, Cortese. Oh, and it's going to be good because it's not Chardonnay, so pour away. (laughs) (laughs) You know how I feel about Chardonnay. Not. (laughs) And I think it's so important during the summer season to try all these different things. Um, because ooh, mm, ooh, that mm. is so ooh, good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, Jonathan, it say, almost say, seems a little frizzante. Say, say, say more. Mm. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's relatively brand new. It's a 2016, wow. so it might have a little CO2 still it does, dissolved, yes, but it's mm. nice. dissolved in it. It's not, you know, it's not a bubbly wine overall, but it's super young Just and super dances on your tongue a bit. Zippy. Um, Corte- this would be perfect for Corte- a barbecue season. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and again. This is something, Italians are making this for hundreds and hundreds of years. But, you know, the, the town, you know, mm-hmm. a- Amy, you know it because your family's from there. Yeah, but, nearby. You yeah. know, I, I mean, I've said, you know, I've said this before. I can't even really find Bill Ricca. <laughs> you know, how, 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 how am I, I going to figure out where is Gavi? Where, where is right. the town of Gavi? What does the town of Gavi mean? What it means is this grape, Cortese. And, um... I like an easy drinking uh, wine in the summertime that goes with mm. a lot of foods. I can mm-hmm. already tell it's food friendly because yeah. it's just delicious yeah. by itself, and, and it's you know, wonderful. And you know, just even the just just sitting here, I'm thinking about this conversation we were having about ash as an ingredient. Mm-hmm. And there's an Italian cheese from this part of Italy, which is a goat's milk cheese, and it's called Sotto Cenere, um, Sotto Cenere under cinders huh. under ash wow. and in this case they take the cheese and they roll it in ash and that dries the outside and forms the forms the rind oh, of wow. it so this would be a so this would be a natural 
at least, you know, regional geographic match. Oh, um, and, you know, ju- just to say also that uh, Italian wines, whites mm. uh, particularly, yes. I, I've been fond of for a while, but some names that people don't know, they've yes. they're, they're come back in full yes. force. Yes, Vermentino. Vermentino, uh, Verdicchio, yeah, yeah. Vernaccia. Um, Which other, I love to other, say. Other grapes, that, other grapes <laughs> that start with the letter V. I, um, well, this is one of the uh, Italian white wine has had this undeservedly... Uh, you know, it's it's kind of had this "Hey, it's better than water" sort of <laughs> reputation, sort of reputation for a long time, and you know, and 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 the, and the, and the, and, the, and, the, and the Italians' really casual attitude towards all wine, you know, kind of reinforces this. Um, so people haven't really been paying been paying a lot of attention to fancy schmancy Italian reds, have not been paying a lot of attention to Italian whites, which. Which are fantastic. It got tainted a bit by Asti Spumanti. Yeah, that might Asti have some. And there is fantastic there cheap is. Italian white. So. I like who, yeah. nothing so, And there's good wine from Asti. Absolutely. Yes. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and my guests are Johnson Alsop of the Boston Wine School. It is he who is pontificating mm. about white wine mm. from Italy, and Amy Traverso of Yankee Magazine. Wow. And going back over to you, Amy, to talk about one of my favorite foods. And now it's become very, very popular. The Mexican street corn, known as elote, is being seen in all manner of places everywhere. Yeah. So first we should say what it is. It's a, you know, corn on the cob. You go ahead. Yeah, grilled corn, Mm. usually slathered with mayo, a bit of uh, crumbly cheese and some spice, some chili maybe sprinkled on it. Maybe some fresh herbs, depending where you are. I remember the first time I had it at Toro. When was this, like 10, 12 years ago? So just mind-bogglingly good. I mean, it's like creamy and rich and unctuous and crispy and sweet and juicy. It's just everything good. So... You know. I sucked it down at Lone Star. Oh yeah, they make a good. They yeah. make a really good. One. I mean, at this point, if you're doing Mexican food and you're not serving elote, yeah. you're just like missing a whole marketing and you know branding opportunity. Um, but I'm seeing it sort of. There's like a lot of creep around grilled grilled corn flavors this summer in particular. It's sort of like the pumpkin spice of the summer. Um, oh, and you will, you know, you know, but not in a bad way. Yeah. And you know that it's sort of reached a certain threshold when Trader Joe's designs a product <laughs> around it. Yes. So they have right now a frozen Mexican-style roasted corn with cotilla cheese um, in mm. their frozen food section. Wow. It's actually quite good. But the one I'm most excited about, and sadly you can't get it here, but if you're going to New York this summer, you know Dominique Ansel who invented the cronut. Mm-hmm. They are doing corn ice cream in a masa waffle cone shell garnished with roasted corn caramel. Mm. And if you want to, like, play with the sweet savory thing, you can get a side of salsa verde. So this is a call to all Boston ice creameries. (laughs) We want want corn cones, we want masa cones, and we want corn ice cream. Come on, Toscanini's. I just got to say, that is sounding really, really good. Doesn't that sound amazing? Yeah, I'm I'm sending a vibe out to Toscanini's. Yes, As we speak. They, they're, they're so <laughs> inventive and awesome that I'm sure they'll have it. Exactly. And they've done corn before. So. I love that. Now, also talk to me about hipster Asian. I'm really happy about this trend because I feel like people, Bostonians, can use a sort of maybe multiple lenses to view Asian food. And um, there's a lot of Asian crossover places that serve sushi and pad thai and this and that. But there's, I would call that pan-Asian. Yeah, mm-hmm. pan-Asian, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a new kind of group, a cohort of restaurants that are 
are just so cool, so hip. Not all of them are brand new. I mean, there's there's Hajoko, which has been around for a couple mm-hmm. years, Shoujo, um, but now there's Ruckus in Chinatown. It's mm. an incredibly cool noodle bar where you will just feel like 10 years younger and 40 <laughs> points cooler just for going there. And even Blossom Bar in Brookline. Now, right. that was like Sichuan Garden, right? That was like right. a classic old school that was so so very good very very good food but like class exactly now you go in and it's so beautiful it's so hip the cocktails are amazing it's been completely redone um the cocktail program is 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 one of the best in the country and it's it's been it's been voted the best new bar in america by like 12 different yeah entities well ron duan the the son of the owners Mm. is a cocktail genius and uh so yeah so it's it's a cool time to be eating asian in boston well i just i don't know where i've been but i just heard about double chin so i'm gonna drop in i think double chin falls into this this category i'm gonna hang out over there with my girlfriend who told me about it and said you're late to the party boston (laughs) boston's (laughs) chinatown is fantastic and yeah. really, really authentic Chinese food. Very, very similar to what you find in China. I don't think I don't think Bostonians really know that. And you oh, well, no, know that no, we but have I'm is just, really authentic. Yeah, but, yeah, but it, you know, hips hip is not necessarily what you would have applied to it. You no, and it's, it's really changing. So, There's a woman, so Jacqueline Church, in Boston who does yeah. these great Chinatown tours. Mm-hmm. That I did one. It is so interesting because she'll take you to the old school places and learn about traditional yeah. Chinese medicine, right. and then you can go to Ruckus. You know, and get the do whole, it all. Yeah. Yeah, yes. It's fun. Well, you know, it probably helps while you're opening up, up this new bottle. Mm. Uh, but, you know, there's a new, uh, Chinese, new Chinese cultural center down in the Chinatown. So, you know, there's even more opportunity to explore all of these different. Ooh, ooh nice. Good all right. Okay. Now, I just love that what you're opening up here, Jonathan, because I get to say, <laughs> yeah. I told you so. You told you, Callie, and you did and you did and you did tell me so. I wish so, I was mature so many, enough. So many, many times. <laughs> I was mature enough to let this go, but no. So, so listeners, for years on this very program, <laughs> Jonathan and I have had an ongoing dispute about Pinotage, you which know, is South Africa's good wine. South, South Africa's signature grape. <laughs> and and uh, Jonathan always would say to me, because I don't want him to wiggle out of this, that it tastes like a rusty tailpipe. And, you know, and I it, disagree. It, <laughs> you know, it took me a long, long time to warm up. To Pinotage. <laughs> and it's Pinotage, not Pinotage. No, Pinotage. Because in California, it's Meritage, and that made right. me crazy. Yes. Yes. Right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, which is, which Meritage is a totally made up word. Yes. yes. So in theory, you can pronounce it however you want. But, right. But yeah, it's supposed to be Meritage, American Heritage. Yes. But this is Pinotage, South Africa's signature grape. And, and Callie, thanks to your, <laughs> let me think how to put this so it comes out just right, Rel- relentless, relentless <laughs> encouragement. I have been given Pinotage much more of a chance, See? and and you know we all we all can um, can develop fixed ideas about things. That's right. And I like um, this. Um, well, one of the reasons I liked it is because I've not been to South Africa, but mm. they're big meat eating people. Talk about on the right. Barbie. These people are grilled meat right. folks. Lamb. Um, so I once had Lamb. a South African friend over to my home for an American barbecue, which I am quite excellent. And he said to me, why do you have so many side dishes? You're confusing the meat. <laughs> so that's a sort of South African take right, on it. So right. that, so pinotage, pinotage to oh, me yeah. is just perfect yes. for grilled meat. It's delicious. And the story yeah. of this wine, and when, and when you smell it, you tell, you tell me what you smell and what you think. But the story of this wine mm. is that it was aged in oak mm. for 40 months. 
Wow. Which, which is an extre- which is an extremely long time. It's not expensive. It's under. Really? Uh, it's, I'd say it's under twenty dollars. Wow. Right. Um, South African wines are a bargain. Uh, Typically. They're a great bargain. They've been out of the international market for a long time. They've got some brand challenges, uh, to put it mildly. But this is, you know, this is something that's had a long, long time in oak. And it's yummy. You can smell that. You can smell that Mm. that toasty vanilla. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of, um, I always always think about if you've ever had carpenters working in your house, when you start Mm. to work a saw, it'll start to get hot a little bit. And you get that kind of toasty aroma, Mm. too. People think about oak and wine. You know, it doesn't smell like the lumber aisle in Home Depot. It's more, it's more like, it's more like vanilla and marshmallow, and cinnamon toast. That that it's kind, good, that kind Jonathan. of thing. It's yeah. very good, yeah. and this would be very excellent with uh, Memphis barbecue, mm. as you all know, the only and the best. Yes. <laughs> this may sound weird, but you know how when you eat red meat and you'll get that tangy mm-hmm. feeling on the mm-hmm. sides of your tongue, mm-hmm. and it must be a heme blood kind of thing. Yeah. This has the same effect. Right. And you get that a tangy on yes. the sides of my tongue, and I'm just picturing like a nice, rare kind of grilled lamb. Mm-hmm. Be perfect. Well, mm-hmm. and this is one of the, the many things that makes wine awesome is that this is such a food-perfect, food-friendly wine. We don't have the food here. And we're enjoying but it. But we can still taste it. Exactly. Through, through the wine and through the associations of the wines. Before you guys get out of here, mm-hmm. I have uh, uh, two other drink things. Uh, one you've brought, Amy, mm-hmm. elderflower. And Elder if people flower. were not paying attention... And who wasn't right. <laughs> to the royal wedding? Meghan and Harry had an elderflower cake. Yes, very different okay. from tradition. And lots of people ran out to get elderflower to find out what's happening with this. What is it? What is it? So, Amy, you brought some elderflower in. Talk to me about why this is happening now. And it's an old drink, actually. It is an old drink. Yeah. And elderflower is extremely common. Mm-hmm. It grows mm-hmm. everywhere. It's all over the place. It's actually blooming right now. And the common way to use elderflower is to create a, sh- a simple syrup with elderflower. Elderflower, and because it's such mm-hmm. a light flowery flavor, mm-hmm. you need something acidic. You, it might be citrus, it might be berry, it might be mango, mm-hmm. um, and you'll see. And so you'll make a syrup, and the way the royal wedding cake was made was a sugar syrup that was poured over the layers, mm-hmm. and it infused the cake with those flavors. It's just a really light, beautiful summer, flowery, citrusy. So this is a elderflower soda. Um, it has some citrus, and it's made in, um, is it French or is it Californian? I, I usually it's, say them as French. Oh, it's UK, no. actually. Oh, Sorry, oh, it's okay. UK. Mm-hmm. So um, elderflower now because of the royal wedding, and I think probably it was symbolic. I think elderflowers are beautiful and elegant, but they're also of the people. Mm. They're easily accessible. I think it was a nice metaphor for the wedding. And it's a wonderful flavor, and mm. the French are obsessed with it. The British are obsessed with it. I'm seeing it show up more in on American menus, and we mm. all can make our own elderflower syrup. It's really easy. It's you'll see the plant, and in fact, the, the name elder mm. doesn't come from being old. It's it comes from an old English word for the Anglo-Saxon word for fire, huh. um, because you'll see the plant has these hollow tubes. The stems are hollow, mm-hmm. and you would use the dried stems to blow on cinders to get your fire going. Huh. So the elderflower plant was used for many, many things Um, and is also considered elder berries are considered a great uh, immune system boost, although I know I've been very cynical about um, natural remedies, but actually I do sometimes take elderflower syrup Mm. when I have a cough. Mm. Well, it's very tasty Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's so light. It would be great with 
lots of things this summer. Just mix it with some acid and you've got a really delicious. <laughs> I know. Yeah, uh, I can't let you go, Jonathan, without talking about more cans, more wines in cans, which yeah. I personally love this trend. I mean, I know that everything that's canned is not absolutely delicious, but there are some that are just fun. It, you know, it's absolutely <laughs> amazing that people are... That people are opening up to different types of wine, different formats of wine, different delivery systems of wine. Screw cap is now is now almost totally accepted. The highest highest end of the mm-hmm. wine world. Screw cap is now totally accepted. Uh, box of wine is becoming very um, um, acceptable yeah. and becoming very commonplace. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this. You know, we do what we can, we can what we do mentality. <laughs> <laughs> with with putting wine into other containers and the and the attitude is sort of why not and gallo now if you you know if wow. you if you wonder if it's a real thing yeah. you just have to follow where the money goes and gallo is now out with their new rosé uh, called dark horse rosé in a can and closer to home truro vineyards um out on cape cod i mean this is the perfect summertime mm. cape cod drink they have their rosé um they have their rosé in a can. And that, so, be- that beach, doesn't impart any metal. rosé. No, Trader no Joe's has rosé in a can, too, which yeah. I actually like. You know, mm-hmm. over time it might. You know, this is something in the in the five or six hours that the wine is going to be <laughs> exactly. in the can before... <laughs> Before, <laughs> before those, before those eight girls buy it and drink it on the beach, exactly. it, it, you know, if it was aging for years and years, we might look at what that is. But this is like this is like a this is like a quick delivery system sort of format. So we didn't even we didn't uh, even think about. Well, that. I also just was I, I brought it up again because I noticed that Barefoot, you know, which yeah. is a popular yeah. wine, and now has uh, spritzers. Yes, which is you know a spritzer is wine it's and and James. Let's face yeah. it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Right. Um, all right. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I like it. I no, like me it. too. I like all this stuff. Well, I'm it's so, so it's so likable. Yes, you I'm know, so marketable. How, how... Really, I am. <laughs> I understand myself. <laughs> so I'm going to try all the canned uh, wines, and I'll let you yeah, know at the end what, what's happening. Yeah, and the rosé thing, yeah. and the can thing, are kind of converging. That you know, exactly. Like, like as a... hot as rosé is, and the can is hot. You know, yeah, rosé in a can. I mean, I'm you know, it's on. We're on fire. Just tell me the name of this pink wine that comes from the the red country as we close here. Uh, the yeah. rosé from yeah. red wine country? Yes. Yeah, any rosé from the south of France. Provence, Languedoc. Um, these are just like the red wines, except they're ex- except they're made from the same red grapes, but they're made in the in the white wine style. Jonathan so. calls them gateway rosé yes, for absolutely. those of you who have been resistant. Absolutely. <laughs> As always, it's a joy to talk to both of you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm thank much you, hipper Allie. now, <laughs> so I thank you going into uh. summer with all my great recommendations, and and uh, your recommendations will be on our website, so people should look for that. So thank you again. Jonathan Alsop is founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School, and Amy Traverso is senior food editor at Yankee Magazine and co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. 
Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and Bill Piacitelli. Vakanda Loingapai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. 